0: We were saying, imagine a scenario where you bring a bunch of regular citizens into a room and you give them a chance to talk about the future of Ireland. Why don't we give that a go? And others have done it. Why don't we try it? <laughs> Their reaction was just something else. You know, we had senior journalists from all the media organs, I, I suspect, now. Many senior politicians saying, you're daft. You know, you academics really don't have a clue. That's not how politics is run here. We have a Citizens' Assembly. It's our parliament. <laughs> From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn
1: State University and the studios of WPSU, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam.
2: And I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to Democracy Works. Today we are talking all about deliberative democracy and in particular the Irish Citizens Assembly project. Uh, With us today are David Farrell and Jane Souter, two of the principal researchers on that project and winners of the McCourtney Institute 2019 Brown Democracy Medal. They traveled all the way from Ireland here to central Pennsylvania to come and spend some time with us. Maybe
1: we ought to explain for the listeners uh, quite what we mean by deliberative democracy. So the
3: easiest way to explain it is to put it in contrast to politics as we normally understand it, right? I mean, we normally understand um, democratic politics as being a uh, a, a fight, uh, some kind of, of antagonistic um, struggle between two competing parties who are uh, both trying to win, right? And they do that by mobilizing money and votes, basically. And so deliberative democracy uh, de- developed in reaction to that model, they didn't like it. And so they felt that people were being manipulated and used but not engaged and not respected in the process. And so deliberative democracy sets up this model where you bring together everyone who's affected by the question, whether it be you know taxation or, or public funds or hmm. crime in the streets or whatever, you bring in everybody who's affected that, that everyone gets a voice Everyone gets a say. We, it's collaborative, face to face, and they um, and we try to solve this this problem together. I,
1: we thought that's why we elected representatives, so that we didn't all have to make ourselves knowledgeable about the minutia of all issues. Right, and <laughs> that is why.
3: And and, and framers and put a lot of thought into they that. They put and, and so you do not. And they not... do
1: have they do have representatives in Ireland too.
3: Yes, they do um we can talk about why Ireland came to this but the 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 problem with deliberative democracy is exactly the one you just you just articulated right that um, it is, Impossible to get anything beyond a neighborhood well, together to well, talk about no, problems. That, that was not the case that in was...
2: Ireland. I mean, well, here they they cut right to the chase. Was they didn't start with low level or unimportant issues. They went and, right for the jugular. And that's and that is but,
1: exactly why they but, won the award. But that wasn't actually the problem I was pointing to. I mean, rather I was saying what's wrong with relying on our representatives that
3: um, that people feel like they're shut out. That they're not they're not part of that their issues aren't listened to that their point of view isn't respected that it becomes this um, food fight between people who have the ear or the, by interest groups who have the ear of politicians so it's, and, yeah and so they don't feel like democracy is working for them
1: so Rather than putting my my faith in a representative who is not working for me or is corrupted by money or whatever, the the idea here is I'm going to put my faith in other citizens to take care of this. Right. We're
3: going to take care of it Because we're not all
1: taking care of it. I mean, the point of deliberative democracy is actually similar to representative democracy in that we don't all get involved. It's a small subset. It's just that it's a small subset not of elected people, but people who are chosen by poll. Well, yeah, no. I mean, it reminds it, me of William Buckley, who once said <laughs> that,, uh, you know, he would rather pick a pick pick a Congress from uh, the phone book randomly than." Uh, than through elections, through elections, yeah, yeah, or yeah, 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 something like that. Well,
2: and I don't think the two things are are mutually exclusive. I mean, David and Jane, I think, would certainly argue that they they shouldn't be. And I think, in fact, weren't weren't politicians part of the, the yes, citizen Commission they in were. Ireland? Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. there is a long history of deliberative democracy, and the results of deliberative democracy being completely separate and. Utterly unimportant to the political process, right? It it was fine for neighborhoods deciding about you know what what to do about traffic patterns or what to do about um, kids in the park too late. But once you got to any kind of meaningful problem or any any kind of scale, it, it its importance evaporated. And that is not what happened here in Ireland. On the contrary, it um, it literally changed some of the most important. It, it resulted in some of the most important changes in Irish law in a generation. And it all started through this deliberative process. So it is an amazing story. It is almost unique in terms of the relevance of deliberative democracy. And and, uh, um, they do a really good job of defending it.
2: So with all that said, let's bring in David Farrell and Jane Souter. Before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor on Democracy Works, the Penn State World Campus and its Psychology of Leadership program. Sharing responsibility, empowering others, looking forward, motivating from the head as well as the heart, building trust through collaborative decision making. Is this the type of leader you want to be? then apply for the master's program that will get you there the master of professional studies in the psychology of leadership offered entirely online by penn state university's world campus learn from talented faculty with top academic credentials and professional experience learn from other students from diverse backgrounds and industries the master of professional studies in the psychology of leadership at penn state allows you to be the leader you've always wanted to be Learn more about the Psychology of Leadership program at worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. Again, that's worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. And thank you to the World Campus for supporting Democracy Works. David Farrell and Jane Suter, thank you for joining us today on Democracy
4: Works. Thank you. It's pleasure to be here.
2: Uh, so the, the two of you are... Um, Part of the team that brought citizen juries and deliberative democracy more broadly to Ireland, and we heard Michael and Chris in the introduction talk about what deliberative democracy is and and why it's important. But I thought it would be good f- um, for you guys to kind of set the stage. What was the political climate like in Ireland uh, leading up to the the start of the citizens assembly project?
0: It was bad. Um, it's hard to imagine almost a decade later just how bad things were but it was a, a severe economic crisis. I mean the Great Recession as we now refer to this moment affected most European countries and particularly certain countries and Iceland and Ireland were probably among the worst affected. So almost overnight our unemployment doubled our national debt just went through the roof our banks, all our banks collapsed uh, all international banks just left and um, you know so b- buildings were being boarded up public employees had their pay cuts uh, private employees lost their jobs em- immigration went through the roof uh, and then major protests against government uh, you know trust in government plummeted so this was as, about as existential a crisis as you can get
2: mm-hmm. and, and so you you saw an opportunity to to bring this this more deliberative approach into politics and into government
4: yeah, well, it was part of a, a sort of a wider thing that we were doing. So myself and David and a few other political scientists, we set up um, a blog and we had conferences and so on called Political Reform. So it was all about actually looking at what were the, the things that were going wrong with central government? What were the What were the weaknesses in our system that allowed this kind of implosion and made it so much worse? in Ireland than in many other European countries. I think it was any Greece that was uh, that was worse affected. And the deliberative democracy came out of that. But it was a, a long, slow kind of boil with um, a lot of help actually from uh, a US philanthropist, uh, Chuck Feeney, and um, Atlantic Philanthropies. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know,
0: what we were saying at that time, it may it sounded quite bizarre, we were saying Imagine a scenario where you bring a bunch of regular citizens into a room and you give them a chance to talk about the future of Ireland. Why don't we give that a go? And others have done it. Why don't we try it? Their reaction was just something else. You know, we had senior journalists from all the media organs, I suspect now, many senior politicians saying you're daft. You know, you academics really don't have a clue. That's not how politics is run here. We have a citizens assembly. It's our parliament. Uh, citizens are not for for that role. You know, you can't trust citizens to take tough decisions. That's the job yeah. of professional politicians. So just forget about it. That's the sort of climate we faced when we tried to introduce mm-hmm. the
2: idea. Yeah, and we we certainly hear those those arguments a lot in in the U.S. People talk about the U.S. as as a, a representative democracy. You know, the founders feared some of these these kind of direct democracy uh, measures. So given given that that pushback that you got, how did you go about Building support to to get this thing off the ground.
4: Well, we we wrote a lot of uh, different pieces in uh, in newspapers and so on, and had a blog, and then these people from Atlantic approached us and said, you know, there might be something in this. So we sat around and came up with a a proposal about what might happen and gave it to them. And they were like, no, that's not ambitious enough. You know, come back for more. So we kind of put another 50 grand onto the price tag and David gave it back to them again. And once again, no, it wasn't ambitious enough. So we put another 100 grand on to the price tag to do more. And eventually after a series of iterations like this, they said, okay, that looks like it'll run. And uh, That gave us the funding to actually set up the experimental um, assembly, which uh, then allowed us to actually have proof. So uh, we produced a really nice book that's still available. And we brought that around to uh, the politicians, to the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister, their staff. And uh, we were able to show that the citizens in the room uh, who we'd brought in, that their trust in politicians went up Their um, knowledge about uh, compromise and not always being able to get exactly what you want uh, increased. And generally the efficacy went up and we're in such a moment of crisis that actually some of the politicians and their staffs went, well, maybe this is actually worth, uh, maybe this is actually worth an experiment. Maybe we should give it a go.
2: Yeah, they they saw it to be in their advantage to embrace what what the citizens were were saying or what was coming out of the the citizen assemblies.
4: Yeah, they knew that they had to rebuild trust with the citizens. You know, as David said, it was a real, it was a real moment of uh, of crisis, and you know those crises can can go either way. So the politicians then obviously preferred that if they could do something positive, that would rebuild relationships. Um, rather than keeping going down the the same path and um, increasing disquiet and distrust and uh, marches and protests and so on.
2: What about on the citizen side? What was, what was the, the reaction there as you started going out to try to find people to, to participate in, in this, the citizen assemblies? How did you gain their trust for something that's new? You know, people are, are inherently resistant to change sometimes.
0: I mean, I- invariably, uh, there was a lot of cynicism and uncertainty, you know, more cynicism, I think, on the part of many people, including many citizens who were becoming aware of this idea. And so it's very hard to get it around, you know, the the idea around, because effectively what you're saying is you should trust a regular citizen who's selected randomly, like jury duty. We've all been through the process of jury duty, I'm sure, where you get picked randomly. Um, And that's the same principle that applies. So you're basically saying we're going to get 100 regular citizens into the room together um, who've never met before. And the only reason they're in their room is because they won the lottery. They got selected. And um, they're not there to represent sectors. They're not there to represent different communities. They're not there because they' got a mandate because they ran for office. They are there as individual citizens just to represent themselves about the issues that they've been asked to consider
2: right and And they're not discussing you know lightweight issues either. Tell us about some of the the things that were on on the docket for these citizens assemblies.
0: I mean, there were a number of of different topics, but um, the big ticket items really were in the first of we've had two of these now, as you may know, um, marriage equality. You know, Ireland is a traditional Catholic country after all. So the idea that we were going to debate the idea of gay marriage uh, in a process like this was considered quite, quite difficult. And then abortion at a later stage. So really difficult subjects for a country like ours.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and so it um, in in both cases it seems like the the decisions that came out um, were kind of politically liberal, which which you said maybe goes against what you might think of as kind of the, the country's heritage or background. So was there there something about this this process that made people change their minds or, or was it more just that, there was just a a part of the country or sentiment of the country that just hadn't had a chance to be communicated before.
0: See, this is one of the extraordinary things about um, processes like this because a lot of the job of a process like this is to actually educate the politicians. So we now know, Jane and I and other colleagues have done the survey work on the Irish population, you know, other, other survey work that we've done. We now know that the The average Irish voter by a long shot was in favor of gay marriage and in favor of liberalizing abortion long before the politicians realized it. And so what really helped with these sort of processes is that the politicians could hear what regular citizens were saying to them about what they wanted for Ireland. And so it it helped to bring the politicians down that difficult
4: path. I think that's really crucial. So I think a lot of the time the politicians don't hear from regular people about these kind of issues so a regular person will contact a politician about their local school or traffic or the road but they don't contact them about these kind of big issues so on these issues they hear from interest groups they you know, they hear from lobbyists and those interest groups and lobbyists are always quite extreme and quite polarising on, on either side of uh, of these issues and so the politicians would have heard there would have been a a very strong um pro-life um group that would have been campaigning in Ireland since the, the early nineteen eighties. And on balance on the media, it would always be somebody from that group who'd be heard um against other people. So this gave the impression, I think, to a lot of politicians that the country was as divided. You know, one of the reasons the politicians didn't go near um referendums on these issues, despite Um, pressure from the UN and elsewhere is they actually thought that the the country was really divided on it and the Citizen Assembly allowed a way through that and allowed the politicians to actually see well what is a thoughtful citizen's voice you know once they've had the opportunity to listen to evidence once they've had the opportunity to hear both sides without the kind of uh, just shouty talking, talking points that you get on cable TV type debates. You know, what is it that uh, the people will actually come to? So it was the first time they actually heard that and it allowed them to go behind the issue then, I think.
0: And you, and you know, Jane uses the phrase thoughtful citizen's voice. After all, we have to remember these were citizens selected at random. So these were citizens that came from all walks of life. And if you want to imagine one particular moment, one particular short episode in one of these processes was when Finbar, the truck driver, stood up, asked for the microphone to stand up. And it, I'd never really spoken in the public forum of these processes. I'd been involved in the small little group discussions. And this was when we were discussing gay marriage. And Finbar stood up, took the mic. Cameras were on, live streaming. The country could be watching from outside. This was on live TV. And he, uh, he said, he told the story about how as a young boy he'd been abused by a man and how he was completely against gay people ever since then and never understood why gay people you know, should be on this planet, let alone have any rights or anything, but that he was persuaded of the need for gay marriage. And just that, just that thoughtful citizen coming out in a way like that, in the way in which that citizen had been brought down a journey, it wasn't a journey that was designed to make him make that change. It was a journey that facilitated him becoming more thoughtful on processes like this.
2: Yeah, and so how did you... Go about finding the people to give the presentations. I mean, we, we live in a, an environment, you know, at least now, maybe it wasn't as bad six, seven, eight years ago, but where there's, it's so easy to say, oh, well, this person's biased in this direction, this person's biased in this direction. How did you make sure that you were finding people who could convey information truthfully, accurately? fairly, those kind of things.
0: I mean, that's so important. Um, The process must be as open and transparent as possible. Documents must be put on websites. There must be as much live streaming as you can do. Everything must be done so that anyone outside the room can be fairly certain that this has been done well. And then you need to have an expert advisory group. So we were part of the group for the Constitutional Convention, but we weren't so intimately involved in the more recent one. And the idea is the expert advisory group should either consist of, it'll be a mix, it'll be uh, indiv- uh, experts who are unimpeachably objective on the issue. That they've, they, they've no skin in the game, they've not tweeted or done any social media, they haven't expressed a public view, you wouldn't really know where they stand. And that's uh, very hard to find. So more normally than not, they would, they would, it would also include people who have strong views. And the idea is you marry one with the other. So you would have somebody with a slight pro-life tendency when you're discussing abortion and somebody with a pro-choice tendency. And the idea is to have that balance so that when they go to pick the experts who are going to come and talk to the citizen members, that the uh, everyone can be reasonably certain that that has been done as objectively as possible.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, Jane, you mentioned earlier the the lobbying groups and and how they had very much dictated the the political conversation on on some of these issues. Uh, what what did they do when when the the citizen assemblies were happening? Do they find a way to try to work their way in somehow? Or, or well, um,
4: some of them would have objected in the beginning and sort of said that this. You know it wasn't a reasonable process and so on but they were told that uh, if they went to lobby any of the individual citizens or make contact with them that they wouldn't then be able to present any evidence to them and it was the same with the media if they were to go and harass uh, individual citizens then they wouldn't be invited in so in fact the citizens were pretty much left alone Um, and then the lobby groups were presented so we had experts um, sessions but then we also had interest group sessions so we could have 10 people from different interest groups so um on marriage equality i remember there was one panel and there were um two kids uh, were two young adults whose mothers were gay you know who were concerned what would happen if the mother who wasn't actually there their mother went into hospital how they'd have no rights to help or visit and that kind of thing and further down on the same panel were the knights of columbanus who had a a very different uh view about marriage equality and how marriage should just be a union between uh, a man and a woman so all of the different interest groups and lobby groups were able to come in and make their pitches but it was very clear that they were interest groups and lobby groups on either side, and that they weren't the experts. Yeah. And,
2: and, and so how did the, the work coming out of, of that process make its way, or, or how did it translate into the, the ballot initiative that the rest of the country actually voted on?
0: So it would be wrong for us to suggest it was done beautifully Mm -hmm. and perfectly. And there are a lot of problems with the Irish processes. They're not perfect, but they're they're well on the way to being better than the way things used to be. So it varied with the topic, but the best example really was on the abortion Mm -hmm. topic. You know, the Citizens' Assembly spent five months, so it was five long weekends across a five-month period, discussing, debating, deliberating, hearing from experts. And then a very detailed report was produced took a few months to complete that which was signed off by all the members and that was sent to the parliament which is what had been agreed would happen and then the uh, parliament set up a special committee with representatives of all the parties on it and they spent uh, nine months debating in detail the report of the citizens assembly they didn't ignore it they didn't sideline it they didn't agree with everything they agreed a lot of it Um, but they brought in experts sometimes the same experts And they discussed this for a long period, for nine months. And they recommended, look, we're going to have to have a ballot. We're going to have to have a referendum on this. And the government, under our system, the government effectively has to call that. The government said, OK, we'll do it. And they went ahead.
2: So five weekends, that is a big time commitment for for people to to give up. Were they compensated or or what was the the kind of carrot in the stick for for them to to participate?
4: Well, the... The first, uh, they weren't compensated um, at all, um, so it was just, would you, would you like to do it? And obviously, then that makes it more difficult for you know people who have childcare issues. Or so the second time around, the uh, you know there was childcare paid for, and obviously travel was paid for their hotel room and all their meals, but there wasn't actually um, an ex sheet payment. But I think we think that uh, you wouldn't want such a large payment. That it would be a serious incentive to do it, but we think that you probably want enough of a payment to uh, make sure that there isn't actually a monetary disincentive to to doing it.
2: Yeah. So, the how did how was the um, citizens' assembly uh, report those kind of findings? How was that actually translated? Did people going to the polls to get to see any of that, or or um, how was that how was that communicated out to the general public?
0: I mean everything goes on the website mm-hmm. so those who want to become informed could become informed but it would be wrong of us to suggest that everyone went and read a copy of the report but we know from the survey work that we've done we, so we carried out survey work on the, on the day of the ballot, on the day of the referendum on abortion for example, we did it on the marriage equality also the same story in which we asked a series of questions, we asked them the people going in to vote, were you aware of the Citizens' Assembly? And over two-thirds said, yeah, we were aware of it. Then then we went and asked them, well, here are a series of questions about how the Citizens' Assembly operated. Can you answer these? And these were objective knowledge questions. And again, two-thirds of people correctly gave the correct answer to those things. So we were able to show that there was good understanding of the role of the citizens assembly in the calling of the abortion referendum and furthermore that that was a significant factor in the yes vote
2: and, and it seems like there there had to be pretty kind of significant buy-in from from the media to help get get the message out there what what did that uh, relationship look like
4: yeah what well, there was um the media were were very much uh, part of it so there would have been journalists and the back of the room at, at all times, and some of those journalists were actually very sceptical um, to uh, to begin with, and quite a few of them came out afterwards to say, actually sitting down and watching these citizens' debate and deliberation take things seriously would totally change their mind about it. That uh, in some ways they were, you know, taking things more seriously than some parliamentary debates you see, you know. Mm. Um, And the the TV cameras, especially for the big issues like um, abortion and marriage equality, these were were always newsworthy and they appealed to the media and to media logics of, you know, um, two different sides coming together, big arguments, a big vote. So it's something that the the media would want to cover and the, the TV cameras were there. They were, you know, interviewing some of the citizens. They were filming some of the voting. So after most weekends, there would be it would have been on the news. Um, now, obviously, you could have had more, and you know, there's a lot better ways of doing it. But there was certainly, there's no way we'd have had. It was seventy percent of people who had heard of the Citizen Assembly after the abortion vote, and we would not have had anywhere near seventy percent if the media had chosen to ignore it.
2: Were there other thing, other factors that you think made Ireland a, a particularly kind of ripe for success for this this type of model?
0: I mean, when we get asked that, it's there's a number of things that we think come together. Of course, the small size helps, but it doesn't have to be a factor. And you know, there are very inventive ideas being brought up, not least by colleagues that work in this very institution, people like John Gastel, for example. Very interesting ideas about how you could translate this onto a bigger stage. But nevertheless, size is certainly was helpful in our case. Deep crisis. You really need a good crisis. You know, so we can only hope, <laughs> you know, that that you have something like that, that just gives that seedbed for something like this to be tried. You need a receptive ear. So there was a degree of courage on the part of the leadership of the government in 2011 to go down this road. They had no idea where this was going to go, but they they took a punt with us. And, and then, you know, to be frank, you also need a lot of hard grafts. You need a group. We were doing what we could do in Ireland. You would need something of that kind in a country like this, of a bunch of people who were prepared to give up the time and put a lot of energy into trying to promote this idea.
2: Yeah, so, so have there, there been um, additional citizens' assemblies since the two on, on abortion and marriage equality?
4: Well, there's one starting on um, gender equality in a couple of months' time, so later in the fall. And then there's a smaller, more local one coming Next year, about directly elected mayors, so to have um, kind of US-style city mayor in uh, in Dublin. So those are two that are in the pipeline at the at the moment.
2: And um, I I read in your your book, which we'll will link to in in the the show notes, that there was actually a, some form of this process prior to Brexit. Is that right, or or somewhere in in the the Brexit process?
0: Well, there's a lot of efforts being made right across the world now to use this sort of method. I mean, we certainly, you know, we weren't the first to do it, but we were lucky in getting as far as we could in our country. Um, and so there are colleagues in Britain who tried the same thing we did with our We the Citizens mm-hmm. project in 2011. They tried to promote an idea for a Brexit Citizens Assembly. Um, they didn't get much traction, but that's as we speak, is an ongoing. So there are various groups right now in the UK. Right now, right across the UK, there are 10 Citizens Assemblies Most of those are at local, you know, municipal level, but there's uh, Scotland's about to start One Wales just recently had one. And there's talk, there's also going to be one set up by committees in the House of Commons on the question of climate change. Yeah. So it's definitely coming uh, right across the world.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, we also saw the, the grand debate in France uh, that, that happened earlier this year. Now, that strikes to me as as, as a little bit different, more of like a, a top down. You know, President Macron, as I understand it, said, OK, we're, we're going to do this. Do you think that it has to be more of like a, a bottom up movement to, to really be successful it's
0: it's a hard one isn't it because um if it's if it's too bottom up then the politicians won't engage if it's too top down then it's seen as a farce as as a cynical exercise so you need to get the balance right and and, and in a sense we we got it right in the Irish case that the government set it up it was run by civil servants you know ideally that's not the way you should do it, but that's the way they did it. um and then the government set the agenda and the government said what they were going to do with the end of the agenda so that's the area where perhaps you need a bit of focus. You know, the government might want to set the themes, but maybe the uh, Citizens Assembly should be given a bit more say over how to define its own agenda.
2: Mm-hmm. And and are there other places in, in the world where you see that that might be next to kind of bring this this model online?
4: Well, there's all sorts of different ones. So the new, um, the new French one following on from Le Grand that was again in response to crisis and the gilets jaunes on the on the streets of paris but now macron is is running one on climate change um in the city of madrid there's um, a kind of a permanent standing um citizen assembly about different issues and then there's one in belgium that david's been very involved with which is a citizen assembly and um a permanent one in the the german-speaking houses of uh, parliament there but you know there's small local ones in other parts of the world in asia as well and even some in in south america so it's something that's kind of growing and developing and morphing um as we speak
2: yeah, and we've seen touches of it here in, in the US as well. I know we have the the, the Citizens Initiative in Oregon, participatory budgeting is big in, in New York and some other places and you know, kind of seeds are, are are being planted. So what uh for anybody listening out there that might want to kind of try to get this off the ground, whether they live here in the in the US or somewhere else, what are, are some steps that they, they could take? Who should they be talking to? What should they be thinking about?
0: I, I mean, they should get our book.
2: <laughs> we'll start
4: with that. okay
0: <laughs> no, th- there's there's quite a quite an active network. i'm I'm trying to remember as I speak, there's a very good democracy r and d democracy r and d there's a really good website democracy r and d and that they plot all of these developments all around the world, including across the United States. and that probably is the most active network that people could start with.
2: Well, uh, we will leave it there. David and Jane, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. thank you.
1: So uh it's- Terrific interview, and they gave a uh, they gave a great talk at the Brown Medal as well. Really, really worthy winners. Uh, One thing that really strikes me about this whole thing that they did is that they were able to do it around the issue of abortion. It is, it is. I mean, they just went right for one of the most
3: heated, and you know, in a Catholic country like Ireland, especially so, right?
1: Well, it's also that in the United States, you know, we usually think of of uh, abortion as a valence issue, which Mm -hmm. means that we think of it an issue that has huge value uh, implications for people on both sides. People are very passionate about it. People also tend to know how they feel. So the idea that there's a lot of room to deliberate around abortion, uh, really, really struck me.
3: Well, so that raises the question, right? But, but about oh, how okay. you would do it.
1: About how you would do it here. Whether it would work here. You know, you try to do it here, then that citizen, it would have to include members of the interest groups, and then you're into extremes. Yeah, I just, I mean, every. It's just a very different kind of. Plot. It's hard for me to picture how you do something like that on a large scale, on a national scale. Yeah. Around an issue like abortion in the United States.
3: Well, you know, there there are some. I mean, it is it is really easy to dismiss this effort by saying, "Oh, it would never happen here," right? And um, if you if you if you start with that attitude, it will never happen here, right? Well, no, on the other hand, <laughs> well, I think there are structural differences
1: between I think our politics. Meaning, yeah. For one thing, we're in a very highly polarized partisan period where it is extremely difficult to move people off their partisan poles. Uh, and we also have, you know, our parties are so intertwined with uh, interest groups on one side of an issue or another, it's hard for me to imagine something like this happening without their involvement oh, as I- well. I know it does on a, on a smaller level, like what happens in, in Oregon. Um, and, of course, we have a highly decentralized politics in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. So in the United States, I mean, it kind of makes sense. You could do this in some localities, probably can't do it in others. But on a national scale like this, I'm in awe that they were able to do it. Yeah, I, it, is, it is a very
3: different country, right? I mean, ethnically, it's not nearly as diverse. Um, it, there's, a, there's a common uh, religious ground, even you know, cultural ground. So there are, and and it's a and it's a parliamentary system. There's a lot of structural differences, um, but I but but it is, you know, I, I you know I'm I'm hesitant just to say it could never happen here. But my inclination is to say it could never happen here. I mean that doesn't mean that this isn't a model that that um, that is extremely important and worth, um, you know, f- investigating. Uh, from a social science point of view to f- say, you know, how did this work? What are the features? Yeah, what to, me,
1: to me, it raises another set of concerns, and, and that is what has broken down in our representative democracy that we can no longer count on our representatives to deliberate for us. I mean, that was really the idea. Mm-hmm. There
3: is no deliberative democracy without um, this uh, raging dissatisfaction with the political status quo. That's, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think you could argue that, you know, look, you citizens, whether you like it or not, are sovereign. And with sovereignty comes responsibility. And and you can exercise that. You can choose to ignore that. But the fact is that you have it. And how that's manifested, whether it's through... Um, you know, arguing with your representatives or or writing letters, petitioning whatever, or through this um, you know forms of
1: participatory democracy you it, it's still there 's still a burden on you yet democracy is supposed to be set up in a way, and this is part of the point of political parties in a way that even those who really can 't understand what 's going on, even those who just have to try to make it through the day. In terms of working their jobs, can count on their representatives to make decisions for us. So I, I always will have. I know that they spent a lot of emphasis on saying it was representative, and I believe that it was because uh-huh. you know they use professional polling firms to 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 pick their people. But there's just something that rubs me about this kind of approach that says, you know, be careful how you d- use the term democracy. <laughs> there does need to be
3: this. Um um, resources provided to make sure that people have childcare, that they have travel expenses, and that they're compensated at least minimally for their time. Right. So that you do have this kind of, um, you're, you're not just going to the regular suspects and to the people who just like like this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They just like to get in a room and argue and talk and discuss, which is clearly not the majority of people. But the idea is that you've been selected if you want to do this, here's—it's not going to cost you anything, mm-hmm. and and if and if you're able to do that, um, then yeah, then I do think it's it's a, a fair. Uh, and, and it addresses some of your concerns. Yeah. So um, once again, um, we want to thank David and Jane. This and, and congratulate. They saw this as an effort to re- to respond to a crisis, and they ought to be congratulated for that as well. Um, in any and and it, it does provide a lot of um, of a foundation from which to continue these conversations about what is the role of deliberative democracy and how does it fit into broader politics, democratic politics. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, Thanks to uh, Jennifer Great interview And uh, thanks to you for listening My name is Chris Beam This is Michael Burton And this has been Democracy Works